Okay, I feel bad breaking up uh, the uh, talking time, but there's time afterwards, which includes food. So, uh, before we start, let me uh, begin with with prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much that we can uh, gather together uh, as a family uh, this evening, uh, and we thank you that we can uh, talk about uh, events that happened uh, hundreds of years ago, uh, but yet uh, shape so much of our life today. Uh, and we thank you that even though uh, things happened a long time ago, your truth is the same and is never changing. Uh, and we pray that you would stir us this evening with the same truth that stirred so many hearts during the time of the Reformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I begin, uh, there's <coughs> you were promised uh, two free gifts uh, and we always deliver on our promises in our church. So, the first uh, gift is um, a poster, uh, which you can take and uh, put on your wall. Uh, you can, it's a really great poster. It has the five uh, solas, which will make perfect sense, hopefully, at the end of this uh, talk. Uh, and also, it has some quotes on those five uh, truths uh, by some of the reformers, and a bit of an explanation about what... Uh, each of these things mean. Uh, so there on the back table, uh, and also on the back table is a book uh, by Michael Reeves, and uh, this book is, uh, gives a very uh, good overview of uh, Martin Luther and uh, some of the other reformers, uh, and gives some good uh, information on the truths of the Reformation, and also the impact it had on later generations as well. So this is a really good book. Uh, and again, it's free to take on the back table. Uh, but we just would ask if you could take one per couple, uh, that would be really good so that we can make sure there's enough for everybody. Uh, we may have time <coughs> for questions at the end. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, we're going to do uh, a song at the end as well. Uh, so there may not be time for questions. So if you have questions... Uh, I'm definitely going to be here for food, so you can ask me uh, as we eat food uh, afterwards. So this evening then we begin uh, a new series at Table Talk, uh, where we'll be giving a series of talks on the Reformation to coincide with this year being the 500th anniversary of what is seen as the start of the Reformation, which was the 31st of October 2015. Uh, that's known as Reformation Day, and the reason for that is because on that day in 1517, Martin Luther nailed what is called his 95 Thesis, which were 95 statements on the door of the castle church in his hometown of Wittenberg. Although Martin Luther never intended to start a Reformation, People in those days would nail things to uh, church doors that they wanted to discuss. And the 95 Thesis really contained uh, no doctrine as such, but they were a complaint about the practice of selling indulgences, which was time off of purgatory. And it was a way that the Catholic Church at the time were exploiting people. But this event of him nailing this to the church door snowballed into what we now know as the Reformation. But before we begin, why is it that we should study at this period of time? Why are we doing it? Well, there are a number of reasons uh, why this is important. Number one, 
all of us uh, here today in, in, our, in our church, uh, certainly the ones who are not visiting but are regular attenders and members of this church, uh, we are a product as a church of events that happened 500 years ago. In Europe at the time, there was only one church, the Roman Catholic Church, and we are a Protestant church. Now, the word Protestant originated in 1529 when a group of, uh, of people, of rulers from the Holy Roman Empire were at an imperial assembly in a place called Speyer. And the group of princes and cities that favoured the doctrines of the Reformation issued what they called a prostatio, affirming what they believed to be the truths of Scripture, what we know as Reformed beliefs. And they were not going to sign up to the Roman Catholic Church doctrine. And so the name Protestant comes from that time, that word, prostatio, which is what they issued, a protestation against the Roman Catholic Church. And so our church is not Roman Catholic Church. We stand against the same uh, false doctrines that were being preached at the time. And so we are a Protestant church. But more important than this, the second reason is that the Reformation uh, was a work of God. Now, you won't often read this in the textbooks, but often in times of great darkness, God uses events and people to speak his word with such power that the world is changed. And that happened during the time of the Reformation. And as a result of the Reformation, millions of people since have been have come to know Jesus Christ because of the preaching of the truth that was uh, brought out and rediscovered during the time of the Reformation. The Reformation was not just about doing church better. It was, in part, about getting rid of corruption, but it really was the recovering of the gospel that the corruption had buried. The Reformation was not a time where something new happened. It was a time where something old was rediscovered. Michael Reeves in the book, which you can uh, have at the back, says uh, this. 500 years on, we remember the Reformation because it was not just another call to do better. It was the recovery of a message that had got buried. A world-changing message for all centuries. And the third reason to study the Reformation comes from the second The same God that worked in Europe in the 1500s is the same God that we worship today. And we live in a country and in a continent that has turned its back on the truth of the gospel, not in exactly the same way as 500 years ago, but nevertheless the problem is the same. People are not hearing the gospel. It isn't hidden in a Catholic church, but rather it's hidden in the trappings of the Western world that cause spiritual lethargy. And so what we need today, like 500 years ago, is reformation. And by learning what happened all those years ago, as we see God working in the events and in the lives of individuals at the time, we should be inspired by that and pray for the same today. And what I'm praying for for this particular talk, and indeed for all the ones that we do over the next months, is that this is not information only, but it's inspiration. Not information, but inspiration to pray for reformation and 
being inspired ourselves to be the ones that God will use to bring that about. Now, before I begin uh, properly, I want to give a disclaimer. Uh, The Reformation is a huge uh, event. It happened in different ways in different countries. There were different denominations that came from it. There were different time periods from 1517 till about 1700 where amazing things happened under the umbrella of the Reformation. And there are literally hundreds of people that we could do talks about. Uh, From Contagious Camp, I have a pack of top trumps that have about 50 different individual reformers on them. There's no possible way that tonight or even over the next number of months we can talk about all the people and all the events and what happened in every single country. And it's fascinating to to read about all these different people and how things happened all over the place, but we can't do much more than scratch the surface tonight and even in the next few months. So here's the plan uh, for this evening. The aim is to give an overview of the Reformation as a whole from the point of view of the doctrines of the Reformers. That is what they believed about how we get right with God and live for him and how this was a fundamental shift from what went before. Now this is important because more than people or specific events, the biblical truth that from the scriptures is what changed everything. It wasn't just the individuals, it was the truth that these individuals were stirred with and unleashed that made the change. And it's only through believing and proclaiming the same truth today that we will be able to have an impact on our generation. So we're going to do this with the following outline. The first two points of which those that were contagious will remember. So first of all, we're going to look at the dark days, what life was like before the Reformation. Then we're going to look at some sparks in the dark how God was still at work, even in those dark days, preparing the way for Reformation. Then we're going to look thirdly at after the darkness light, how the rediscovery of the biblical truth changed everything. And then fourthly, uh, we're going to look at a cause worth dying for, how these beliefs led many people uh, to be martyred. And in the final section there, we're going to look specifically at the Reformation in England uh, as a kind of a case study since that's our home country. So it's important for us, I think, to see how God worked in this country uh, during that time and how many died here as a result. But before we begin, I want to include you guys in a discussion. Okay, so um, with your neighbour or in groups um, of three or four, I want you to discuss the following question. Okay, what makes a good church service? Okay, I forgot to write this as a slide, but hopefully you, it's an easy question. What makes a good church service? Okay, so you've got two minutes uh, with the people you're sitting with uh, to talk about what you think makes a good church service. So go.
Okay, let's uh, come back together. Now, the reason that I've asked this question is because I think if we uh, think about what we think makes a good church service today, hopefully you'll have an understanding uh, when I explain uh, why the days were so different before the time of the Reformation. So, what would you say, maybe call out a few things, what makes a good a good church service? Yeah, really great. Yeah, talking about the Lord Jesus. Now, normally, uh, we do that in a number of ways, don't we? So, there may be a sermon, okay? Uh, maybe some of you said that was a good thing in a church service. I hope so. Uh, but before the Reformation, uh, there was a sermon, uh, but it was in Latin, so you wouldn't understand what was being said. But also, the sermon was not the central part of the service. Now, in our church, uh, you'll notice when you come in, that up here we have the pulpit. That's cent- the central uh, point of our church, isn't it? And that's because in our church uh, we believe in the preaching of God's word and so it's central to what we do. But in the pre-Reformation times, the centre of the church was the altar where they would perform the mass, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So that's a great answer, Daniel. We uh, talk about Jesus, but there wouldn't have been a sermon in the same way as today. It wouldn't have been important um, in the central point of the service. What else makes a good uh, church service? <clears throat> God's presence, yeah? That's right, yeah, yeah. Now, I can't say for certain that God's presence was never in a church during that time. Uh, but if God's word wasn't being spoken and people didn't really understand what was going on, it's hard to see how they would have had that sense in the same way perhaps we do. Yeah. Correct doctrine, yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. The gospel being preached. So what do you mean by worship? Yeah. Singing and prayer, yeah. So in those days, before the Reformation, there was no congregational singing. Okay, they did not do that. Um, and there was uh, chanting sometimes uh, done, um, perhaps being led by groups of monks and things like that. But there was no congregational singing at all uh, where the church would stand uh, and sing. Uh, there would have been prayer, except you would never have had uh, a layperson pray. So <clears throat> in our church service, uh, we have various uh, members of the church that come and lead us in prayer. Uh, in those days, though, only the priest would be able to pray because they believed only the priest had the access to God in order uh, to do that. Anything else? What, what else? Being one body in Christ, yep. yep. Again, I can't comment on how they uh, were in those days in terms of that, but yeah, that is important, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, perhaps another thing, um, <clears throat> just a couple of other things that to mention... Uh, they would have done their communion very differently to us. We'll talk about the Mass um, in, in a little bit. But they wouldn't have understood what was going on, really, because it was all in Latin. Uh, and they believed in what's called transubstantiation. So they would have believed that the, the body of Jesus, or the bread, sorry, literally became the body of Jesus. And the wine literally became the blood of Jesus. And in fact, only the priest would be able to drink the wine. Okay, they wouldn't allow uh, the average person to drink the wine. They would only have the bread. And um, 
There wasn't really a good reason given for this. The, one uh, writer said that the main uh, reason, the only reason that was ever really given was that the, most men in those days had beards and they were worried that the blood of Jesus would stick on the beard and it would be a sacrilege. There we go. Um, notice uh, in our church as well, it's fairly plain. Uh, but in those days, people would have worshipped uh, relics and images and all sorts of things like that. Uh, and also... Um, Incidentally, uh, there were no seats in those days. People had to stand uh, for the service, unless they brought their own chair with them. So I think we take these things for granted, don't we, that in our church services we're going to sing, we expect uh, people to pray, uh, we expect a sermon. Uh, all those things we, we just we don't even think about in some ways. But before the Reformation happened, those things uh, just did not take place. Now, in order to understand what exactly happened, though, we need to understand not just what a church service was like, but understand the dark days. Now, 500 years ago, the Roman Catholic Church ruled Western Europe, not just spiritually, but politically as well. There were no denominations, there was just one church, and the Pope was its ruler. And under the Pope, there were cardinals, and under them, there was a hierarchy of archbishops and bishops until you get down to your local priest. What the church said was law, and the Pope was the authority. And you couldn't argue with him, and because the Bible and all the church services were in Latin, which the average person couldn't understand, you couldn't really turn to the scripture and show that he was wrong. In fact, many priests didn't understand what they were saying. And they would perform the services just by memorizing the Latin words and just saying them. And it's where actually we, why we get the English phrase, you know the phrase hocus pocus? Because it comes from the Latin, uh, hocus corpus meum, which is this is my body. And because the priests didn't really understand what they were saying, they would get through it so quickly, it would sound like hocus pocus. And the reformers would use that phrase to say it was just a load of hocus pocus, transubstantiation. People got their understanding of their Christian doctrine from the Roman Catholic Church because they couldn't go to the scriptures themselves. William Tyndale, who we'll give a talk on in November, he talked about the ignorance of the priests. This is what he said. Many were incapable of reading their missals, which are prayers in Latin. The rest, he said, were only interested in two books. One was a manual of female anatomy, over which they would pore night and day with the excuse that they were to teach the midwives. And the other was a tome which gave them tips on gathering tithes, mortuaries, offerings, customs, and other pillage. Despite the ignorance of the priests, though, the ignorance of the lay people meant that the Roman Catholic Church had a huge influence over people's lives because it was only from them that all doctrine and practice came from. And this power was abused. First of all, there was the conduct of the clergy. Now, the church's power was such that its leaders were not held accountable, and the power went to their heads. There was rampant sexual immorality within the clergy. And although they were not able by church law to marry... They had concubines all over the place. And this was led from the top, with the popes being more corrupt than anybody. 
Just two different examples. One pope was called uh, John the uh, 23rd. He was so corrupt that he was even brought to trial at a church council. So evidently there were some that stood against immorality. And this is what one writer says about this pope. The most scandalous charges, he said, were suppressed. The vicar of Christ was only accused of piracy, murder, rape, sodomy and incest. And then there was Pope Alexander VI in the decade before the Reformation began. Now he bought himself the votes to be elected and he had numerous children by his mistresses, including his daughter. And he would poison cardinals, sometimes at mass orgies where his daughter had a poison ring with which she would stab people so that they would be poisoned and die. This was the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. And such was the politicization of the office of Pope that there was no spiritual qualification necessary for it. And at one time, there were three popes at the same time. Here's what happened. There was a pope that was elected called Urban VI, and the cardinals didn't like him. So they decided to elect another one, and his name was Clement VII. But Urban didn't want to be deposed. And so he stayed on in Rome, and Clement decided he was going to go to Avignon in France. So there were two popes. Well, they had successors, and the French people, they liked the one in France, and England, because France liked the one in France, liked the one in Rome. It went on for years. But 20 years later, in 1409, the, po- the two existing popes weren't liked very much, and so all those cardinals got together to elect a new one that would be the real pope. Well, they elected him, but the other two popes didn't want to be deposed, and so they stayed, and then they ended up being three popes, all of which claimed to be the authority over the church. Well, you can see how dark it was, because there was no authority. I mean, who do you go to? Do you listen to Pope 1, Pope 2, or Pope 3? It was like blind date. So the conduct of the clergy was dark. But the other way that they abused was in their doctrine. They taught doctrines that enabled the church to get money from people. Salvation became all about what you do. Good works, confession, attending mass, giving money, doing pilgrimages to relics. And the affirmation that you were doing a good job all came from the priest. And I'm just going to tell you about two of the most important doctrines, which was Mass and Purgatory. So the Mass is the Roman Catholic version of our communion. And the doctrine had developed so that they believed that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, he meant that the bread and the wine literally became the body and the blood in a miracle called transubstantiation. This meant that the elements of the Lord's Supper were worshipped as divine. And the Mass was believed to keep on sacrificing Jesus Christ in order that our sins could keep being forgiven. They didn't believe that his sacrifice was once and for all. And so you could only be forgiven of your sins if you kept attending the Mass. It wasn't about a personal relationship with God. It depended on your priest saying the right Latin words at the Mass so that you could be forgiven. 
But the extraction of money from people, which the church needed, really culminated in the scandal of indulgences. A religion of do, do, do means you are never going to do enough to please a perfect God. But the Roman Catholic Church thought that people who were doing some good can't just go to hell, they must go somewhere else. And so they developed the doctrine of purgatory. Now purgatory was a place that wasn't heaven, but it wasn't hell. It was a place of punishment where you were purged for your sins for a length of time. And once that time was done, depending on how sinful you'd been, then you could go to heaven. But it could be millions of years. But in order to have less time in purgatory, you would have to do good work for the church. And by the 1500s, really, that meant giving money. When you gave them money, they would give you an indulgence, which was a certificate. And the certificate uh, was, was given to you after you'd given the money to tell you how much time you've got off of purgatory based on how much money that you gave. So, for example, if you went on a crusade because they needed soldiers, it was a bit different from giving money, but if you went on a crusade, well, then you might get what's called a plenary indulgence, which meant you're off purgatory forever and you'll go straight to heaven. If you gave loads of money, perhaps, you may get a plenary indulgence. But the more money you gave, it boils down to the more time you get off of purgatory. And the Roman Catholic Church was desperate for money because they were fighting wars against the Muslims in Turkey, and they were rebuilding Rome, which was in ruins. And so they thought the way they can raise money was to sell indulgences. Now, the Muslims of the Ottoman Empire at the time were a huge threat to the church in the West. And the Muslims caused much anxiety for people at the time. They had already taken over the lands of the Eastern Church, with uh, Constantinople falling in 1453, and they continued their march westwards, defeating the armies of the Roman Catholic Church. And people in Europe at the time were fearful in these dark days of being overrun by the Muslim armies. Um, Norman uh, Ellis, who I spoke to about this last week, he said it was a lot like when in the Second World War uh, people were frightened of Nazi Germany invading. It was terrifying time. So if people were around during that time, that's the kind of fear people had about the Ottoman Turks coming and taking over. It was a frightening time to be alive. It was dark days. But as well as being frightened of conquest, disease was hanging over Western Europe during these dark days. The Black Death in the mid-1300s resulted in the death of one-third of Europe. And there was fear it could come back again. Can you imagine a, a third, 33% of our country being wiped out in a matter of years because of disease? People were terrified. And the corrupt church could offer no comfort. So it was a time of, of darkness. It was dark days. But during this time, uh, there were sparks in the dark. Even in times of great spiritual darkness, God has his people in the world, shining as lights. And there were churches in the remote areas of Europe where it was difficult for the Roman Catholic Church to reach. And often those churches were left alone and were able to shine the light of the gospel. 
Although there was lots of evil in the monasteries, there were believers in the monasteries, and it was in fact the monasteries, through their copying of scripture, that kept the word of God uh, alive in that kind of a way. But there were individual sparks too. One such man was John Wycliffe. He was born in 1330, just before the Black Death broke out. Now he was an educated man, he went to Oxford, and so he could speak Latin. And he saw the effects of the Black Death, and it terrified him. He saw it as a judgment from God, and it drove him to his knees and to the scriptures. And finding the light of God in the scriptures, he felt that all people should be able to hear the scripture in their own language, and thus understand the gospel, which can deliver them from God's judgment. And so Wycliffe began to translate the Bible from Latin into English. He had to do it all by hand, handwritten. There was no printing press at the time. Well, he got in trouble with the Roman Catholic Church because Wycliffe believed that the Bible was the authority, not the Pope. Well, this resonated with people, especially when there were three popes at the same time. Wycliffe translated the Bible, and then he trained up men to go and translate it and to preach it. And these were known as lollards. Lollard basically means uh, babbler or poor preacher. And it was very successful. Many people came to faith in England as a result of the babblers babbling the gospel in people's language. Uh, He ended up in exile in a small parish called Lutterworth, not too far from here, about an hour's drive, I think, maybe a bit longer. Uh, But years later, the Roman Catholic Church dug up his bones, they burned them, and they throw them in a stream uh, near the church in Lutterworth. And you can still go to Lutterworth, and you can see the church he ministered in, and in the church you can see a copy of a Wycliffe Bible, uh, and you can see the stream where they threw his uh, ashes. Well, the writings of John Wycliffe influenced another man called Jan Hus. Jan Hus was a priest from Bohemia uh, in the modern-day Czech Republic. Jan Hus read the writings of Wycliffe and the scriptures, and he began to teach, like Wycliffe, that the scripture was the authority and it should be in the language of the people. Well, Hus was burnt at the stake in 1415, And this caused so much uproar in his homeland that they set up their own Hussite churches. Well, again, the Roman Catholic Church didn't like that. And so they sent armies into Bohemia. But actually, the Hussite churches defeated the Roman Catholic churches. The huge armies of the Catholic Church were defeated. And the Hussite churches were left alone, really, as autonomous churches and were able to worship God as Hus uh, decreed that they ought to. But in addition to individuals, there were two events in particular that happened in the dark days that proved vital in bringing the light that was coming. The first is the invention of the printing press in 1450, or around then, by a man called Johannes Gutenberg. Before this time, uh, books took ages to produce, and they were expensive. And we've seen how Wycliffe had to do everything by hand. But the printing press enabled literature to be mass-produced in perfect copy. And it was sent out, it could be sent out all over the place. And this would prove a key tool for the reformers. The Reformation was begun and sustained 
through God using the written word. First and foremost, the written word of the Bible. And this leads us on to the next event that happened in 1516, which was 500 years ago last year. In 1516, a Dutch scholar called Erasmus produced an edition of the Greek New Testament. Erasmus was a scholar who was part of a group called the Humanists. Now, they're not like humanists today who have no belief in God at all, but rather it was a group at the time that were interested in finding out the truth. And they felt that to find the truth, you had to go back to the original sources. And so if you're going to find what the truth of the scripture is, you need to look past the Latin translation and go to the original Hebrew and Greek that the New Testament and Old Testament were written in. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, and Erasmus produced a copy of it, and he had it printed through the printing press, and it was sent out all over Europe. And for many, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation should have been last year, which is the 500th anniversary of the publication of the Greek New Testament. The reason for this is that it was the New Testament that the Reformers read, the Greek one, and which caused them to see the truth of the gospel that had been buried in the darkness of the Roman Catholic Church. Erasmus also produced a new Latin translation of the Bible. And in doing so, he changed some important words that had been used for over a thousand years. One example was that he changed the words for do penance to be penitent or repent. Rather than being saved by doing, doing penance, we are saved by a change of mind as we turn to Jesus Christ and follow him. Now you may wonder, why did the Pope allow this translation to be published and and go out and change everything? Well, I haven't read a real reason except I've got two that I've kind of thought of. The first uh, reason is vanity. Erasmus dedicated the book to the Pope. He said, this, this, this Bible is dedicated to the Pope. And Erasmus at the time was really famous all over Europe. And so the Pope probably looked at this and thought, Erasmus is dedicating something to me? Um, and he, he really liked that. It filled him up with pride. But the other reason was probably ignorance. It's unlikely the Pope ever read it. And so he wouldn't have known the impact that this New Testament would have. But when people began to read the Bible in Greek, and they saw this translation that Erasmus had done, and they saw what the Bible really said, there was light. After darkness, light. It was this Greek New Testament that Martin Luther began to study. And it was used by God to lead Luther to saving faith in Jesus Christ. By this this understanding that Luther had of salvation, though, came later on. In 1517, Luther was more concerned with the abuses of the indulgence trade. And so on October the 31st, 1517, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And the printing of this thesis and its spreading around Europe is seen as the start of the Reformation. Now, Luther is indeed a key character in the Reformation through his speaking, his writing, 
and his establishing of the Lutheran Church. Uh, Next month, Tim is going to give a talk on Martin Luther. But Luther never believed that he was the cause of the Reformation. The light after darkness was from the word of God. Listen to what Luther himself said. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, that was uh, his great friend, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. What was it that caused the Reformation? The key is the word. It was the word of God. Protestant churches vary greatly. There are many denominations. And for us as an independent church, we can do church however we as members see fit to do church. But to truly call ourselves a Protestant church, there are five key doctrines that we must believe. And these five key doctrines were what were rediscovered during the Reformation, and they came straight from the Bible. Wherever Reformation happened across Europe, and it happened differently in different places, the common thread through all of them is that these five truths were rediscovered and the reformers stood firm on these five truths. And they're known as five solas. Sola being Latin for alone. And here uh, they are, hopefully. Nope, my thing's uh, not working. But there are uh, five of them. Uh, Sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Sola gratias, which means grace alone. Sola fida, faith alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Soli dea gloria, God's glory alone. So what I want to do is very briefly, and it will be very uh, briefly, look at these five doctrines and compare them with the voice of the Roman Catholic Church and what they were saying at the time to show how the Reformation brought the church back to what God had said in the first place. So first of all, sola scriptura. God, uh, this is, sola scriptura means God has authority and God has spoken in his word. So 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 was in our Bible reading this morning. It says that all scripture is God breathed. If God has spoken and has, and he has done so, He has done so through a book, the Bible. God has spoken through the scriptures, and the book, therefore, the Bible, is our authority. The Bible teaches that it is inspired, that it's without error, that it's sufficient for knowing God and knowing how to live for him, and it teaches that it is clear, that we can understand it. Well, the Roman Catholic Church agreed that it was inspired. They agreed that the Bible was without error, But they disagreed that it was sufficient and they disagreed that it was clear enough for us to understand. In terms of sufficiency, they taught that there were two sources of authority of equal value, the Bible and the church. And the church was headed by the Pope and so the Pope's authority 
was equal to the Bible's, but in reality, the Pope's authority superseded that of the Bible. In terms of clarity of Scripture, well, the Bible was taken out of the hands of people and was written in Latin, and it required a priest to read it and to teach it. The church felt that the average person can't understand the Bible for themselves. They can't read it, they'll misunderstand it. And that was the argument mainly why it couldn't be in their own language. When you consider how the priest could speak your language and you got all your teaching from the priest, it's easy to see how the authority drifted away from the Bible and to the church. All you could listen to was the priest. And this resulted in man-made religion that blinded people to the truth. It blinded people to what God had said in his word. But the reformers called people back to the Bible. They read what the Bible claims about itself and they stood on scripture alone. And we see this in more detail um, as we look at the lives of Luther and especially um, when we speak on Tyndale in a couple of months' time. All the other solas flow from sola scriptura. So the second one, sola gratis, grace alone. This means that the Bible teaches us that humanity is sinful and that there is no way that humanity can save themselves. God is holy and has no sin whatsoever. And that means that there is nothing in us that is lovable and makes us worthy of being saved. Rather, because of our rebellion against God, the Bible teaches us that we deserve hell. But God has brought us salvation not because of how good we are, not because we are so lovely, but because he just loves us. He loves us because he loves us. There's no reason he gives. It is grace, unmerited favor. Well, the Roman Catholic Church did not teach this. They said that grace is something we receive from God when we make ourselves ready and right to receive it. Uh, as, as an illustration, what they taught was that grace was like the wind, and we are on a, on a sailing boat, and if we put our sails up, then the wind can blow and we can receive grace. We have to do something ourselves. We have to make ourselves in a position where we can receive the grace. And the grace of the Roman Catholic Church was received through seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, mass confession, penance, anointing the sick, uh, becoming a priest, and getting married. When you do one of those things, you can get a fresh infusion of grace. In other words, God will love you if you do this. You have to do one of those uh, seven things. Now, obviously, you can get baptized once. You can get confirmed once. You get married once. But the mass and confession, well, you have to keep going to do those all the time. And if you kept going back to get more grace, then you received it. But if you didn't go to Mass and you didn't get penance, well, then you'd run out of grace because you'd do something unlovely. It's a horrible way to live. But the Reformers accepted, yes, I am unlovely. I'm, there is nothing about me that's worthy of being saved. Their view was summed up in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace... You have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. 
Christianity is not a performance-based religion. It is grace alone. You see, it's not about what you do. It is grace. And for the Roman Catholic Church, it was all about what you do. You have to go to Mass. You have to do penance. You have to do this. Do, do, do. Give money. Do, do, do. Grace alone. Thirdly, uh, sola fide. The Bible teaches that we are made right with God, not by what we do, but by trusting in what God has already done in sending Jesus to die in our place on the cross. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means right with God, being made right with God. And so we trust that Jesus' death and resurrection has paid for our sins and it gives us eternal life. Jesus takes my sin upon himself and he credits me with his righteousness. So that when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and not my sinfulness. And theologians would call that imputed righteousness. That is, I'm credited. It's the righteousness of Jesus is put on my account. Okay? The Roman Catholic Church, they didn't teach imputed righteousness. They teach it something called imparted righteousness. That means that God forgives me, and God gives me the power to live a righteous life, but if I'm not living a righteous life, then I'm no longer right with God. My assurance of salvation is down to how I perform. It's about me. If I'm not doing the right things, then I'm not forgiven of my sin. It's a bit like grace. Imagine how horrible it would be to be a Roman Catholic living that way. Every time I sin, I'm not sure if I'm really saved. Every time I do something wrong, I'm questioning, am I right with God anymore? Has God just cast me aside? And I've got to go then back to church and and, and do all these things to get right again with God. It's a constant cycle. I sin, I've I've got to to get saved again. That means I've got to go and confess to the priest and it's a a horrible way to live and they even taught that even up to your deathbed if you died and on your deathbed you sinned and you you didn't have confession to the priest you could go to hell it was a a horrible way to live there was no assurance no certainty but the reformers saw that the bible teaches that my status with god is about what i believe about what jesus has done he's done it all on the cross It's not about my performance. Faith alone. And we have faith alone in Christ alone. That's the fourth one. Christ alone means that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way to God. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. He alone can save us because he alone is God and man. The Roman Catholic Church taught that Jesus was God and man and that you can get to God through Jesus, but Jesus was a mediator, not the only mediator. You see, they thought that if Jesus is God, well, he must be unapproachable and terrifying. So you needed other mediators that could go to Jesus before Jesus would go to the Father. His mother Mary was said to be a mediator. That's where you can you can go to to pray to Mary. There were other saints that you could pray to. The priests were mediators. You can't pray on your own. You have to go through a priest. 
Really, it's a result of not believing sola fide, that we're right with God through Jesus Christ, and sola gratis, that God loves us, and he wants us to approach him. And so the Roman Catholic Church's salvation was found in Jesus plus something else. Plus something else. But the reformers brought people back to the Bible which teaches that only Jesus can save. And they rejected anyone like a pope or a priest or anything like a relic or the mass that would take our confidence away from Christ and in him alone. And then the final one, Solidea Gloria. Now imagine if if your uh, religion is all about what you do, it's all about good works, well then there's... You're going to boast, aren't you? You've got to prove that you've done the good work. So it results in boasting. Look what I've done. And you would even boast to God. Look, God, what I've done. I've done all this. But if the work of salvation is Christ alone, through faith alone in him, by God's grace alone, nothing of ourselves, well, we believe what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.31. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The reformers called people back to what the Bible teaches, which causes us to give glory to God. Now, all of these doctrines were rediscovered in the 1500s. They reformed the church. And you can see, hopefully, from the explanations, how these doctrines smashed to pieces the beliefs that the Roman Catholic Church held dear. These doctrines set people free as they realized they were saved not by their own works. It doesn't matter about what I do, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And over the period of the Reformation, we'll see that people could read the scriptures for themselves, and over the course of the Reformation, it became available in their own language, and they were able to see these things for themselves, and to know how to live for God themselves. But the power structure of the Roman church was not going to accept this shift in authority. And so they tried to stamp it out. And people died in their thousands so that these doctrines could be spread abroad. And the final point uh, I want to make is that this is a cause worth dying for. Many died all over Europe in this period. But as an example, I want to use our own country, England as it underwent Reformation. Now, in England, we'll be able to see the dark days, the sparks in the dark, the light that came, and the martyrdom of many. We've seen in England that there were sparks in the form of the Lollards. But when the Greek New Testament arrived, it had a great impact. Uh, People, especially at Cambridge University, which was nearer the continent and so had more reforming literature from Europe, were influenced Uh, by the Greek New Testament. Uh, William Tyndale went to Cambridge uh, because of its Greek expertise, and he later translated the Bible into English. So England had many who were ripe and ready for Reformation. And they used the events of the time to cause Reformation to come. The big event of their day was the marriage problems of King Henry VIII. Henry was married to Catherine of Aragon, And she produced him a daughter, but couldn't produce him a son. And she was getting older. And the chances of her producing a male heir were very slim indeed. And so Henry wanted a divorce, in part because he wanted a male heir, 
but also because he was besotted by Anne Boleyn. Now, the Catholic Church did not support this divorce because Catherine was the niece of Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire and Charles V was far more important to the Roman Catholic Church than Little England. The Catholics in Henry's court, such as Thomas Wolsey and Thomas More, faced their downfall because they were sympathetic to the Catholic Church. But the evangelical people, or the ones that were sympathetic to reform, such as Thomas Cromwell and Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, they were promoted in Henry's court. And this led to the split with Rome and the establishment of the Church of England. But Henry was not a believer. He was a staunch Catholic. Interestingly, if you uh, have money with you, okay, I'm not going to ask for money because we know that's not right, uh, but if you have money with you, uh, on the back of all of our coins, uh, on the, where the Queen's head is, you'll see the letters FD. And FD uh, is a Latin phrase, Fidei Defensor. And it means defender of the faith. And that phrase was given, that title was given to Henry VIII by the Pope when Henry VIII wrote a defense of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church against Martin Luther. So Henry loved the Roman Catholic Church. He loved the doctrine of the church. He wrote against Luther and he was given this title. But even after the Church of England was established and he split from Rome, well, Henry still liked the title Defender of the Faith. And every monarch since that time has been called Defender of the Faith. And if you ever um, see a, a cor- watch a coronation of a king or queen of England, they always have to make the promise that they will uh, fulfill that uh, title to be the defender of uh, the Protestant faith uh, of the Church of England. But what Henry wanted was an English Catholic Church rather than a Roman Catholic Church. And so under Henry, the reform was not quick. Nevertheless, people like Cromwell and Cramner used the events of the time to lay the foundations of a greater reformation to come, not least of which was ensuring that there was a Bible in English in every church. Now, Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour, produced a son called Edward, but she died during complications in childbirth, and Henry married another three times. His final wife was called Catherine Parr, and she ensured that Elizabeth, the daughter from Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn, and Edward were taught the Bible by reform-minded tutors. So that when Henry died, nine-year-old Edward came to the throne, and he was a thorough Protestant. And he released Cramner to establish a reformed Church of England with a reformed Book of Common Prayer. And Cramner made sure that preaching was a central part of the church, and preachers became household names. But the problem at the time, of course, was that the preachers, the priests, had only learnt things in Latin, and so Cramner actually wrote out sermons for them to read out because they couldn't do it for themselves. But England at the time of Edward became a refuge for reformers across Europe who were suffering persecution. But in 1553, Edward died, aged 15 years old, and his older sister, Mary, became queen. Now, Mary was Roman Catholic 
to the core. She has suffered the humiliation of seeing her mother divorced because of Henry not listening to the Pope. And she wanted to turn the clock back 20 years and make England Catholic again. And it was during her reign that many hundreds of people were burned at the stake for their belief in the five solas of the Reformation, including Thomas Cramner. There's a really good book on the uh, church library out there uh, by J.C. Ryle called Five English Reformers. And that they're five um, very short biographies of five of those that died during this time. So if you want to borrow that, um, I recommend it. Perhaps the most famous of these martyrs uh, are Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who died together in Oxford in 1555. Latimer was probably the most famous preacher in the land, and he firmly believed in the doctrines of the Reformation. And through the flames as he died, he said these famous words, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such, such a candle by God's grace in England, that I trust shall never be put out. And as the crowds watched men like this die, they were moved greatly, and many were converted because of their testimony. Mary died in 1558, and some writers believe that Mary, ironically, established the Reformation in England through her persecution, for two reasons. First of all, the horror of the burnings made people say, never again. And they always associated it with the Roman Catholic Church. But more than this, during Edward's reign, the reform was forced upon people from on high. But now, as people saw the reformers die, they realized that these beliefs must mean something. And they were stirred in such a way that the reformation didn't come from on high, but began to take hold of people's hearts. When Elizabeth I became queen after Mary and she established the Protestant Church of England that we have today, and time doesn't allow us to go into why the Church of England became the way it did and so on. But thinking of the martyrs is an appropriate way to end this first talk on the Reformation. One of the chief reasons, uh, sorry, chief lessons that I've learnt during this time was that there were men and women, and there were many women as well, who uh, died uh, and who stood firm on these truths. It, it wasn't just, just men. Uh, they believed these truths of the gospel, and they lived in such a way that they knew they could die at any time. But during the short period of their life, they just gave it all for the truth of the gospel. They exemplified Paul's uh, phrase in Ephesians, redeeming the time because the days are evil. They used what little time they had to live radical lives for Jesus that impact down the ages and into eternity. And we're going to see over the next uh, few table talks just three of these people that lived once they understood these truths in such a way that God uh, worked through them to do amazing things uh, in the history of Christianity. But having heard all this, I hope it's not just information, but that we would be captured by the truths that these people gave their lives for, so that we would give our all for the gospel of Jesus Christ.
and to the glory of his name. So that's all I've got, and we, we have run out of time uh, for questions. But um, what I want to do to end, before we uh, have food, is to actually to learn a song, which um, I know we don't normally do uh, on Table Talk, but because we are an independent church, we can do whatever we like. And uh, this song um, is uh, a really good uh, song that goes, each uh, verse uh, talks of one of the five solas that we've talked about of the Reformation. And the verses uh, sum up uh, very uh, succinctly the truth of what that solar means. Uh, so what I want us to do is um, the musicians are going to play the song through uh, one time. Uh, and what I want you to do is listen to it and learn uh, the tune because we're going to sing it. But look at these words and take them in because th- these words are what? the reformers were teaching. This is the, the rediscovery that went on. And then after the musicians have played it through once, we'll all stand together uh, and we'll sing uh, this